Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend, despite world events, of course. I know many of you are rightly concerned about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And while we're finally starting to see some positive signs with COVID, things are certainly heating up in Eastern Europe. Uh, my thoughts, like yours, I'm sure, are certainly with the people of Ukraine, their loved ones around the world, and of course, anyone of Ukrainian heritage. It is hard to imagine a scenario that's not going to involve serious military intervention. And while that might be necessary, we all know that is going to come with the tragic loss of lives on both sides of this conflict. You know, the leaders who start wars rarely have to contend directly with the consequences of those wars, maybe politically, but rarely do they have to contend with the consequences on a human level. So it's, a, it's an unbelievable situation for sure. Finally back home this week, uh, over the weekend, and, and a little bit this week, although I am working in Seattle on Friday, so it's a lighter week for me. Uh, just a reminder that there is still time to register for a few of the upcoming events we have this spring. Grading from the inside out, two-day training. That'll be virtually uh, April 5th and 12th. I'll be face-to-face -face in Des Moines, Iowa, March 28th and 29th. I'll be in San Antonio, Texas, April 25th and 26th. Now, the two-day standards-based learning in action is right after that in San Antonio, April 27th and 28th. So all of the information for those events can be found either on the Solution Tree website, or you can just follow the links in the show notes for them uh, to find that information. Now, as I always say, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I certainly appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is my friend Tim Cavey. Tim is a middle school vice principal here in British Columbia and the host of the Teachers on Fire podcast. We dig into an array of educational topics, so we have a really fun conversation and we get into a number of different areas. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to address a listener question. Yes, we have a listener question that's been emailed in. And it's a question about determining high school final course grades or scores, GPA calculation, and credit. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Tim Cavey is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with an observation, and that observation is that we are all really funny about money. Now, you, of course, are undoubtedly familiar with the expression, money can't buy happiness, which I often find is only espoused by those who already have it. I'm sure those living at or below the poverty threshold would disagree in that if they had more money, they would assert that they would be a lot happier. Our relationship with money is funny because we all know we need it to afford things, our mortgages, food, bills, lifestyles, even vacations, etc. And we all want more of it. Stop it. Yes, you do. Don't lie to yourself. You see, this is at the heart of our funny relationship with money. We all need it. We all want it. But we all try to pretend we're above it. Oh, no, Tom. It's not about the money for me. And yet almost no one would do the exact same job they're doing right now, teacher or otherwise, no one would do it for free. Now, I'm not saying it's only about the money, but let's be real here, okay? My dad used to tailor that expression and he used to say, money may not buy happiness, but it sure is buys everything else, <laughs> which I found kind of funny at times. You think about all the drama that surrounds 
money, especially like paying for meals. You go out with a group of friends. Let's say there's four of you, right? And the minute you sit down, you know what everyone else is thinking at the table. How are we paying for this lunch? Now, yes, you are. Everyone thinks it. Now, some will think, well, maybe we should just have separate checks. We'll just each pay for our own meals. But you see, if, if you say that, then you kind of appear cheap. And so you can't say that. You don't want to appear cheap. And then other people will think or, uh, you know, maybe we should just split the bill four ways. Or somebody says, let's split, just split the bill four ways, doesn't matter. But then the worry, of course, is like, what if Dave orders the surf and turf? I'm not paying for his surf and turf after I order the chicken Caesar salad. So we all sit there pretending not to think about it when we're all thinking about it. Yes, you are. Now, obviously, it depends on how close you are as friends, but we're all thinking about it. And then it's time to settle up. And the server says, how would you like to pay? And, and the friends all look at each other awkwardly to see who's going to flinch first. Or if the bill comes as one bill, then we go through this whole awkward charade of all reaching for the bill. And then someone grabs it and says, it's my treat. And now the other three are obligated to twist themselves into a knot about how you didn't have to do that. Or, or next time it's on me or some other over-the-top declaration. I actually saw this whole performance play out at a restaurant I was at in Memphis a couple of weeks ago. I was at a table, uh, and two tables over was a table of four women. Uh, now, again, there was a table in between us. Uh, but of course, when you're eating alone, like I do a lot when I'm on the road, you have nothing to do but people watch. So public service announcement, by the way, when you think you're being discreet in a restaurant and you think no one notices what's going on, we notice what's going on, <laughs> okay? So if there's going to be a bit of a shakedown going on in the restaurant, you might want to look around to see if there's any solo diners before you get after it, okay? <laughs> because I'm telling you, we see it all. We have nothing to do but watch people. I saw this couple in Denver last summer have a brawl for it all at the downtown Yard House restaurant. It was epic. Like, I don't know why. I'm not sure what, who was in the wrong or what was going on, but it was on. I wasn't near them, but I could see them directly. It was it was pretty obvious to me. Their, I, like I could like I said, I couldn't hear them, but their nonverbal cues were so obvious, it was impossible not to notice. So let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> Beware of the solo diners that are around you uh, if the brawl for it all is is going to happen. All right. Back to our funny relationship uh, with money. And when it comes to money, no one wants to say the quiet part out loud. When others have more, we wonder to ourselves, what am I doing wrong? Especially in a profession like teaching or education where all of your colleagues are kind of on the same salary grid. So you think, how can they afford that vacation to Mexico? Or why can't we afford that? Or what are we doing wrong? When we say we can't afford that, we often feel less than. And then if we say, oh, we can afford that, then you start to feel like you're showing off. It's just one of those weird kind of things. For some reason, when you admit to wanting something that everyone knows we need, you are somehow cast as shallow, superficial, and all of that. Like, really? Is anyone taking a pay cut so schools can be better funded? Of course not, and you shouldn't, right? You deserve to be fairly, fairly compensated in your work. Everyone does. Educators should be more than fairly compensated for the collective contribution that we make to the greater good in society. Why are we so afraid to say that? Oh, it's not about the money, it's about the kids. Yes, it is about the kids, but it can also be about fair compensation. 
The messages from society have done a great job of brainwashing educators into thinking that they're somehow selfish for wanting fair compensation and maybe increases that, at the very least, keep up with the cost of living. Like every dollar we put toward your salary is a dollar less for students. It's not about you, it's about your students. Yeah, well played society, well played. Prey upon the compassion educators have for other people's children to make them feel guilty for thinking the exact same thing everyone else thinks. I mean, I suppose we could send the guilt right back at them. And, and some do. Shouldn't you want to contribute more to the school system? After all, they're your children, right? I know that some of you are probably uncomfortable right now with this topic. And honestly, that's my larger point. We have this funny relationship with money because I know that with the exception of a few individuals, our external performances don't match our internal thoughts. I know I'm not alone in this, and it's time to challenge some of these kind of myths that society holds. For example, why is the desire for more financial security, more financial flexibility, and more discretionary opportunities for you and your family looked down upon? Like, why? Now, there is, of course, a caricature of the heartless, money-hungry person who's willing to sacrifice all relationships and humanity in pursuit of their riches. Yes, that's out there for sure. But is that, is that you? Why can't a pursuit of more financial security mean that someone could become more charitable? Someone could become more giving? I mean, let me ask you this. If you were handed a million dollars tomorrow, would you fundamentally change who you are? Would you suddenly lose all compassion for the causes you believe in? Would you shift your core principles to become more like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Before Christmas Eve, right? You wouldn't, and neither would I. I think what I bristle up against the most, and this seems to be a common theme for me lately, is the performative nature of so many things we espouse these days. That faux humility is my axe to grind. Many of us are so desperate for others to see us as deep and thoughtful and above it. And I find all of that absolutely nauseating. And I have said for years that I'd rather someone be authentically a jerk because then I know exactly what I'm dealing with. I may not like you, <laughs> but I'll respect your honesty and your authenticity. I have a really hard time, and this is maybe this is on me and it's a personality flaw or whatever, but I have a really hard time with that faux sort of aw shucks, faux humility, that personality. I can't be around people like that for too long. I don't know, maybe the answer is to be just a bit more honest. Look, no, I'm not saying the answer is for educators or people for that matter to come out as, you know, uh, obnoxiously heartless sort of money hungry people. Like that's, you know, void of any soul. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But just being honest about our feelings. Maybe the answer is to just stop with the qualifying phrase, it's not about the money. Because a lot of times when you say that, it's like when somebody says, no offense. You know something offensive is coming. So I wonder why people draw attention to that. Because for me, that comes across as performative. Because in any profession, not just education, any profession, compensation is always on the table during any negotiation. And it should be. I don't see anything wrong with that. Look, you may not always get what you ask for, and there are always sacrifices that have to be made in every negotiation, but one should never have to apologize for seeking to gain more financially, whether it be through compensation or investing or whatever. We can't look down upon those in pursuit of more financial stability or freedom. Again, you don't have to be only about that, 
But for some reason, people have made this a binary choice. That if you if you seek financial uh, security or financial uh, benefit, that somehow you have no soul. That's a that's a great message for for society to send to us all. But I don't think that's true. I don't think it's a binary choice. And again, I know for many of you right now, this open makes you uncomfortable. And that again is really my intention. If you're feeling funny or uncomfortable right now, then you're actually proving my point. We have this funny relationship with money and this sort of external internal tension that we all know is there, but we never talk about it. Honestly, for me, it's the performative stuff. I don't really know what the answer is or if there is even an answer or if this is even a problem in need of solution. As I said at the beginning, this is really just an observation. Maybe the awkwardness will never go away. Maybe that's just by and large who we are. Maybe it's just being aware of it. You know, sometimes awareness can actually diffuse awkwardness and make others feel more comfortable. So the next time you see it online or face-to-face or anything like that, the next time you see it in others, or you kind of feel it yourself, that awkwardness, maybe you'll have a little internal chuckle, if you will, and think to yourself, Tom was right. We are funny about money. Joining me this week is my friend, Tim Cavey. Tim is a middle school teacher and a middle school assistant principal and the host of the highly popular Teachers on Fire Roundtable podcast on YouTube. In 2019, Tim completed his master's in educational leadership, which he asserts has reignited his fire for teaching and put him on a new path of learning, professional reflection, and content creation. I've known of Tim for a while, but last summer we finally had a chance to meet face-to-face, and I'm happy to be able to now call Tim a friend of mine. So Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. What a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Uh, Listeners, fun fact uh, about Tim and I, we live about 20 minutes apart uh, in the Metro Vancouver area. So the irony is that uh, I'm I'm here in Memphis uh, doing this interview while Tim is uh, back in the Metro Vancouver area as we record today. So a little, we could, we could do this face to face, but of course I pick a time when I'm out of town. (laughs) That's true. uh, It is great to have you here. And I thought, you know, rather than focus on a singular topic, as I usually do with most guests, I know that you are, you know, a deep thinker about a number of different topics. And I'm quite familiar with some of your blog posts and your writing and your thinking, of course, from the podcast. So I want to have a more open conversation about a number of different topics uh, in education and thinking about some of the things you've been reflecting on over the years and kind of look at education kind of writ large through your work, but also thinking about the podcast that, that you have as well. So let's dive in. And, and one thing I know, Tim, that you have spent a lot of time thinking about is ed tech. And you recently wrote a piece asking the question if we are using too many apps in education. And I think that's a really great question because you recount your experience at ISTE 2017, uh, obviously pre-pandemic, your experience where you go to a conference and you walk into that, that conference hall and there's 4,000 products and apps that are perfect for your school. And obviously, with the onset of the pandemic, we saw an even greater acceleration in technology flooding into the marketplace. So two things I want to focus on here. First, to answer the question, are we using too many apps in education? And second, what is the best way for educators from your perspective to decide which apps are right for them? 
So to the first question, uh, the short answer is I don't. I don't think we are using too many apps and I don't think there are too many apps. I, I really tried to explore all sides of this question in the piece that you alluded to. And where I end up is that as long as these companies, these ed tech companies are out there pioneering and innovating, uh, we are going to be the beneficiaries of that as educators. But uh, of course, there's a lot to be uh, concerned about or aware of, let's say, in terms of just the the great abundance that you mentioned. And mm -hmm. you will hear from teachers, not another app or not another tool <laughs> to learn. And so it, I, I think it is important to, you know, focus on what is the learning goal? What are we trying to achieve? And then which tool is going to take us there? And a number of uh, great ed tech voices in our spaces are, are talking about that all the time. So mm -hmm. focus focus on the learning, focus on the goals, and then think about uh, which tool will do the do the job. But, you know, uh, traditionally, or, or let's say over the last 20 years, there's been a great temptation to sort of chase after the latest and greatest shiny thing. And, and that's definitely a danger for sure. Yeah, it's very alluring, isn't it? When you when you see the apps and you can get distracted by their features as opposed right. to, I, I love the idea of starting with what do I want the app to accomplish? What's the learning goal right. and what app best helps me do that? Um, so I, I love that notion of looking at, do you have some favorites? Like are there apps that you look at that over the last, especially during the pandemic, are there some some uh, apps or or you know, online tools that have kind of emerged as some of your favorite ways to facilitate learning for students, especially during quarantine and, and remote learning? There are, and I think for most schools, at least middle and high for sure, they start at the G Suite or the Google Workspace and or the Microsoft Suite. So you, you have just a wealth of tools within those suites and you almost don't need, even need to go beyond those. But yeah. Um, I, I love a tool called Seesaw. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. And uh, Seesaw is such a powerful online journal of learning, learning artifacts. And yeah. there is so much that we can do with it uh, that we couldn't do even just five years ago. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it does a lot of the same things that Flipgrid does. You'll hear a lot about Flipgrid as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, the list goes on. The list is long, for sure. For sure. Seesaw is, uh, a, a, there's a lot of different programs like that, for sure. And I, I think a lot mm -hmm. of times, would you would you agree that it's all in the execution? Because sometimes I'll, <laughs> I'll see teachers sort of just, Seesaw can very much be a meaningful way to share the accomplishments that students have, have reached, a, share, a chance for them to share with parents. And, and deeply understand the criteria that they've met and all of that, or it can be just show and tell. So right. do, would you agree that it's all in the implementation or all in the execution of how those apps are used? Yes, and I've done some writing specifically around that. I mean, what is the difference between an online scrapbook, as you mentioned, and right. this this journal that that can really powerfully track learning targets and growth over time and, and really increase uh, student ownership and parent buy-in? Mm-hmm. It's um, it is a, such a great tool to. It can be again. I think right. one of the keys to portfolios is really understanding the purpose of what you're right. trying to accomplish. Is it a growth portfolio? Is it a? Is it show and tell? And there's nothing wrong with that online scrapbook if that's what you've designed it to be. Right. Where I find sometimes schools get themselves into challenges when they say the they say seesaw is one thing. Hey, we're going to use seesaw to kind of replace our reporting process. But then mm. on the other hand, it becomes that scrapbook, right? So I think being mindful of that. So I, it goes back to your advice on what's the learning, 
or what's what are we trying to accomplish with this tool and 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 what's the best way to go about that yeah i think if if you make that claim that you're actually going to use seesaw to replace your reporting process that's a high bar you've got to represent a lot of learning and a lot of nuance there so i try (laughs) to avoid that but i see it as a great supplementary for sure. For sure. Yeah. Because you'd have to have criteria. Parents would have to know yeah. how to consume it. And I think that's one of the challenges with apps like Seesaw. They're wonderful tools. And I agree with you 100%. I think one of the challenges is that sometimes parents don't know what they're looking at. They right. don't know how to consume what, what it is that I'm being shown. So either we teach the students how to talk about it at home or we help the parents through some through, through a link that links it to criteria or links it to an explanation of here's what we want you to notice about what your child right. Did. And that's, this kind of leads me into the next topic, Tim, because I know that, you know, you reflect on technology and you think a lot about technology and you also think about assessment. And of course, assessment is a topic that I, you know, am deeply connected to. Uh, but that is another topic that you that you look at. So I want to approach this kind of in two parts. Um, the first, I want to just think about you personally in, in your career. How has your assessment mindset shifted since you first began teaching and and or, or has it? And if it has, why do you think that shift occurred? Sure. So I when I think about this question, I go back a few years to the beginning of my master's in education program at VIU. Shout out to the good folks there. <laughs> and uh, in my first year of the program, this is around uh, 20. The years are getting fuzzy here, but uh, I, I would say 2017 was it 2017. Yeah. Uh, we, we were asked to find a problem of practice and so after doing sort of a spiral of inquiry, looking at many aspects of my teaching and my practice, I came to this problem that my learners didn't really know where they were going or they didn't really understand why we were doing what we were doing. And at the same time, I started to read a book called Leaders of Their Own Learning by Ron Berger and others. And so I really seized onto the power of learning targets. and. That was a that was at a time when we weren't mandated to be using them at, at the school that I was at at the time. But I started trying to integrate learning targets in everything I did. And that practice was so powerful. It really changed the clarity of what I was doing uh, for students. They found it helpful. It opened up doors to better self-reflection on growth. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, it pushed me to the curricular documents a whole lot more because I was trying to pull those targets from the curricular competencies. And so I was constantly referring to uh, what's my unit plan? What does the curricular document say? So it really kept me anchored in a new way. So that's been transformative and I've never looked back. I've tried to always make sure those learning targets are a part of, but almost anything that I put out to students, any whether it's a doc or slides or a post on Google Classroom or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to make sure for my own sake that I am really anchoring my assessment and instruction and I know where I'm going. You know, it's interesting you say that because when I began my own assessment journey back in 2003, it's funny because as I as I started thinking about it, it reintroduced me to to the curriculum as well. Like I, I, I started to become deeply connected to and I thought at the time that I knew my my curriculum and I knew the standards or outcomes that we had to reach uh, at the time. And yet you kind of reintroduce yourself as you're thinking about learning targets and getting more granularly. So contrast that with what, what was your mindset like when you first began teaching around assessment? Was it more traditional? Was Were you more of a traditional kind oh. of? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, the <laughs> everything from the weighted points and uh, yeah. you know deductions and and yeah. uh, going back to the curriculum for a moment. You know, we would have those those binder. We called them PLOs, but binders of curricular documents sitting in right. shelves. And frankly, just the just the work it takes to go over to a shelf, find the right binder, flip through it. I mean, yeah. the, I, I wasn't looking at those binders for, I'm embarrassed to say, for months, you know. Yeah. And, and so I wasn't yeah. even as familiar with the curriculum as I thought it was. I was sort of doing an mm-hmm. annual <laughs> or like semi-annual <laughs> review, right? Which, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and now I'm proud to say that, again, I'm just so much more familiar with these different uh, curricular documents. So yeah, I was, I was practicing to your question. I was practicing so many of those, those things that we know a little bit better about today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, get in line, Tim, because I think a lot of us share that same story with, uh, with, uh, thinking we knew, we knew our outcomes, thinking we knew our curriculum better than, than we did. And that semi-annual review, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, yeah. Every once in a while I might glimpse, take a glimpse at, uh, those outcomes that I'm supposed to teach you. Oh, by the way, VIU, uh, Vancouver Island university listeners is, uh, the school that Tim was referring to. So shout out to them for sure. Uh, so, so let's stick with assessment here for a moment, because again, I know that's something you reflect on and you obviously talked about that just momentarily ago. So I want to ask you kind of a two-sided question about what has you most energized about assessment and ha- and what has you m- most concerned? As you sit here in 2022, you know, what are you most excited about when it comes to assessment? And this can be your school, this could be globally, this could be you personally. And even the other side of that coin is what has you most concerned from an assessment perspective? Well, here in British Columbia, we are moving into proficiency scales. And mm-hmm. by that, I'm talking about emerging, developing, proficient, and extending as a measure of growth for yeah. students. And and that is something that applies right through, I think, officially it's K to nine. And then we're sort of working through what that will look like going forward in the secondary. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that's been wonderful. That has been truly wonderful, I think, to really move all stakeholders into a better language of learning. Mm-hmm. And, and there's been some resistance in different quarters and, and there's been some parent education required for sure. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when, when these systems first came into place, it was like, where are the letter grades? Where are the percentages? <laughs> and, and we still have to do some uh, further education and teaching because we have parents in every community who sort of expect, well, is extending the top then? Extending it must be for my child, right? So mm-hmm. working through that language and helping students understand it better, making that language a natural, organic part of our practice, our everyday learning, modeling learning, using that for ourselves, you know, saying as teachers, I'm still developing in this area. Um, mm-hmm. So that is really, really exciting. I think it's completely changed the landscape. Yeah. Um, as far as the, the concern, I guess it would be simply working through any misconceptions. I mentioned one of them, which is, you know, if extending is the new 95%, then that's where I want my child to be. So, and that's really problematic. I, earlier this year, I, I worked on a piece called We Are All Developing, or I can't remember the title now, but just trying to explore the idea of being a developing learner. Developing is not yet proficient, but that's not the end of the world. We don't right. have to panic when a, when a learner is developing. So, I guess that's sort of the other side of the coin, to use your term there, that right, right. there there is a lot of constant work to do around what are we talking about with these terms and making them as clear as we can. 
It's it is an interesting conversation, certainly in British Columbia, and it's it's a conversation that is replicated in so many places. When you move to looking at gradations of quality or depths of understanding, versus the idea that this you know marks and grades as compensation or currency, right? It's a right. it's this transactional relationship where it's an exchange of if I do this, you give me that, and that being points or that being sort of what I harvest over the course of a semester. Um, what do you think the best way, from your perspective, just curious, you, what are some of the successes you've had, maybe even in your own school, with the conversations you've had with parents around shifting that mindset as they come in and, and maybe express some concern? Maybe it's not grave concern, but they're just wondering about where this is all going. What are maybe some of the characteristics of the most successful conversations you've had, maybe with faculty, too, and, and also with parents? What, what does that look like? For me, I mentioned writing a piece about what does developing mean? And mm -hmm. that, that actually generated a ton of really positive feedback. Teachers okay. were stopping me and parents were emailing. And so we put the sort of a version of that piece in the, the newsletter for mm -hmm. parents. We also, I, my principal and I do a parent podcast as well. So we've talked about it a lot there. So those mm -hmm. have led to some of the, the best uh, conversations about uh, engaging with these terms, I would say. Mm -hmm. What a great idea to have a, mm. a podcast that is focused on your parent community. So yeah. rather than, I mean, rather than trying to garner a wider listening audience that's specifically designed <laughs> for, for parents and a great way right. to communicate. I mean, parents can consume that at their leisure and uh, updating them on, on the direction that this goes. Have you found that podcast to be very successful uh, for, for communicating with parents or, or are you still slow on the uptake for, for many of the parents? Yeah, I would say looking at the metrics, it's probably about a quarter of our parent population that is actively listening. And I, I don't know if it is, you know, I don't know if there are some who listen to one and go away or what that mm -hmm. looks like on the other end. But it, it's just one more service or one more offering to parents. And like you say, right. for some, they've they've said they love it. They listen to it mm -hmm. every single week. So, um yeah, it's 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 COVID. It's 2022. How else yeah. can we communicate, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, they listen to it every week. They scrutinize it. They parse every word. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, that's how it works usually. Um, it's funny, you know, too, with with podcasting. You and I both obviously have our own podcasts, et cetera. And uh, and you think when you're in this podcast world that everybody listens to podcasts. But when I work mm -hmm. with audiences in different workshops and I ask the question, just like with social media, I'll sometimes ask an audience, like, how many of you are on Twitter professionally? In 2022, it's still the vast minority of people. It's still 10% oh, yeah. of the room is on Twitter, you know, but when you're on Twitter, you think everybody's on Twitter. And when right. you're podcasting, you think everybody listens to podcasts and most people don't yeah. listen to podcasts. So it is an interesting dynamic. So um, it's a tough conversation for sure, because I know certainly in Canada and, and many places in the United States as well, the conversation around moving away from percentages and ratios and points and trying to look at gradations of quality. Uh, that is definitely a conversation I'm involved in a lot with, with even teachers as well as parents and, and communities trying to sort of evolve that traditional mindset around assessment. So, you know, speaking of communicating with parents, that's often your role as a leader. So I want to shift the conversation now to leadership and spend a bit of time because I know, once again, this is something that you tend to reflect on and talk about a lot, uh, and that is leadership and, and that you are an assistant principal and, and leadership is a part of your daily work. 
I think one of the most important qualities of any leader is authenticity. Now, look, I know I'm not saying anything groundbreaking here. Uh, most people would agree with that. But I do think that it's important, you know, that that the first sort of quality of leadership is to be yourself and to try not to mimic other people's personalities. Maybe you can mimic their practices, but not to mimic their personalities. You have to lead in an authentic way. So for you, what are some of your core values as a leader? Like what is you, what drives you each day as a leader? What is your true north? What are the principles that keep you grounded each day as a leader? I read Todd Whitaker's What Great Principles Do Differently last summer, and that was really illuminating. And one of the things he talks about is this idea that if the principal sneezes, the whole building catches a cold, that we have to constantly model what it is we are striving for in terms of mission and vision. And yeah, he just talks about the importance. He says you could almost substitute, you know, our school's culture is you could almost substitute principle for that word culture. And that is a little frightening for administrators, but it's also encouraging. It's also a tremendous opportunity because there's some power there, right? In order, right. Uh, in terms of setting the tone and building a culture and building a culture of learning and safety for all learners. So I try to, I'm very aware of what you just said, that we have to lean into our strengths and be who we are. And so part of what I try to do is tell our school's story. And I, you know, I love publishing and writing and, and as mm -hmm. I mentioned, podcasting, doing all these things. So I try to bring that to the school. And I also am such a believer in this idea of, of relationships. We hear about it all the time. But uh, something I've tried to do this year is learn every student's name. So I'm in a smaller middle school of just over 200 kids. But uh, I try to be on a first name basis with every kid and just constantly at the beginning of the day, throughout the day, at the end of the day, trying to have those interactions. And I have to say, I told some friends last night, this year I'm having a lot of fun because you start to build those relationships and have those exchanges. And, you know, to students, that's really meaningful when, mm -hmm. when you do know their names. So uh, there's so much more that I try to do, but those are a couple of the, the things that come to mind in terms of my, I guess, my flavor of leadership. Yeah. I loved my time in middle school. I, I just thought it was a sort of so a, a, an age of wonderment <laughs> where there's a little maturity there, but still a little bit of innocence about where yeah. they are in their learning. How, how do you think from your perspective, how do you, how do you think we discover our strengths as leaders? Like just thinking off the top of your head here, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but you know, sure. we always say we have to work with our strengths, but how do I know my strengths as a leader? How do I discover? Is it just through sometimes the, you know, one of my favorite leadership expressions is experience comes from poor judgment. You know, you make mistakes and <laughs> you kind of learn what not to do and it kind of shapes your experiences. Are there other ways that you think we kind of discover our strengths or how, like when you got into leadership the first time, did you have a sense of what your strengths already were or did you discover that kind of in real time? I would say that I had a, a pretty clear sense of what my strengths were and the okay. kinds of passions that I brought to the position. And mm -hmm. I, I think, I mean, another foundation for me is this idea of the growth mindset and this idea that we are all learners. And I would say in answer to your question, how do you, how do you narrow down on those strengths? Listen to those passions. And there are going to be certain parts of education that really compel you. And so I try to, hopefully every leader, this is really important to me, hopefully every building leader is a passionate learner. 
we shouldn't have to say that right <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> uh, unfortunately we do though that just as a reminder that hey you are you're still hungry you're not yeah. managing a building you're not managing teachers or students you're still a hungry learner yourself what are you reading what are you listening to what are you sharing because that modeling piece is so important mm -hmm. for your teaching team so yeah, I think just listen, listening to what makes your heart beat and leaning into that is is pretty simple, but it's profound. I think I think that is profound because you know my leadership career began in 1998, and but my assessment transformation began in 2003. And when my sort of leadership instructional curricular focus became assessment, I felt like I became a more effective leader because mm -hmm. I was about something. I, I had, mm -hmm. there was substance behind, and you don't have to be about assessment. You can be about, you know, learning communities. You can be about, uh, you know, equity. You can be about, about anything. It's just be about something and have that passion driving your, your leadership frame of mind. I think that's really good advice to, to kind of, especially for new leaders who are, or, or teachers who are currently thinking about like, I wonder if I could be an assistant principal, what would I, what would I do? And I think pushing people beyond that managerial role, we don't want to downplay the importance of managing a building. Cause a right. lot of times managing a building creates predictability for teachers and for employees. But all of that stuff can be learned, right? Don't you think that you can learn those things? Yes. But it's the it's the leadership side that that we we try to discover. Um, where's your leadership going? Are you is it Are you looking toward expanding? Sort of like as you think about where you are right now, is there any aspect of leadership that you're curious about, or you're trying to expand your repertoire as you grow personally as a leader? Uh, so I'm in my second year as a, a VP and I still teach about 50% of my time. That's sort of a yeah. unique arrangement that you don't always yeah. come across. So I'm really right. enjoying that mix, actually. And that mix okay. actually helps me learn the names of the students, as I was mentioning earlier. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun right now. And I feel like I'm still very much in a learning phase. Yeah. Uh, at, at some point, I would love to take that next step and, mm -hmm. and move into a principal role in some context. But yeah. for now, I'm really enjoying where I am. And I'm trying to soak up everything I can from people like you and, uh, <laughs> you know, try to be that better leader. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. You and I share so many uh, similar experiences because, you know, in, in my early days as an assistant principal, I also was teaching, um, okay. you know, 50 percent of the day, three out of six periods. And it was an interesting dynamic, of course, because I often joked with my students this was kind of the fast track to the office. I've sort yeah. of, you know, like the office has come to you, like, who am I going to refer you to? I'm right here. Your assistant yeah. principal is your math teacher, your social studies yeah. teacher. They didn't like that so much, but we had some good fun with that. But yeah, I think it does, you know, as I was making the transformations in my classroom from an assessment perspective, grading perspective, feedback perspective, as a leader in the school, but also still teaching, it gave me a chance to get my hands dirty with a lot of the practices that I still talk about today. And that For experience, sure. I lean on that experience a lot. Um, so love that. And, uh, you know, I think from a leadership perspective, it's just continuing. I always found that you kind of grew into the different roles and you grew, grew into those different responsibilities. And uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it helps you helps you learn the names. Uh, and helps you get connected to what the students are experiencing for sure. Okay, so let's finish up, Tim, by I want to give listeners a chance to hear a little bit about the podcast, the Teachers on Fire podcast. I uh, off air, I sort of call, called you the pod father a, a little ways. I know there's been podcasts around for longer than yours, but certainly you set a very high standard for, uh, you know, the, the round table that you do. Uh, yes, I mean, there's a lot of podcasts out there and some of them were here before. 
But I don't know that there were as many when you started as there are now after quarantine. You know, there's about six and a half thousand of us who started podcasts during quarantine. Uh, and, and so take us back to the beginning of the Teachers on Fire podcast. You know, where did your interest in podcasting come from? Um, what is the underlying mission of the podcast work that you do each week? Sort of tell us a little bit about the genesis of Teachers on Fire and what the main sort of theme. I think it's pretty explanatory in the title, but but give us the the idea behind the podcast. What sparked your interest in it? What's what's the motivation? What's the mission? What are you trying to accomplish with the podcast? Wow. Well, thank you so much. You, I mean, be warned. You're unlocking a, a favorite topic for sure here. But <laughs> <laughs> we got time. We got time. It's a podcast, Tim. We got time. <laughs> that's right. Well, yes. Yeah, that's that's true. So in 2017, I was, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, entering this master's program. And one of the books I was reading was Mindset by Carol Dweck, kind of foundational to so much of what we talk about. And so that book was really transformative, actually, for me. And it's my number one recommendation to educators. That coincided with my own, probably the, the previous decade of podcast uh, listening. Mm -hmm. And I, I really love the medium. I've just always loved the medium of asynchronous, listen on demand. I can do all these other things. I can mow grass. I can, you know, I can paint my house and do all these other things and listen at the same time. And so that idea started to creep in that, hey, maybe I could, maybe there's room, first of all, maybe there's need uh, for more education conversations that would be valuable. And maybe I could play a part in that. And so one of the podcasts I was listening to actually was Entrepreneurs on Fire with John Lee Dumas. And he really inspired me because he had this great list of questions for every business leader and guest. And that that really inspired me. I have to give credit to him, not only for the format, but for the name. <laughs> and I did, I did look for other names besides Teachers on Fire. I mean, there are so many great derivations of Ed out there and uh, so many creative spins. But I came back to Teachers on Fire. It was available on all the socials. And that, that's always a good sign if you're looking to start creating content. And, you know, Tom, I knew that I would be terrible to start, but I had just read this book. And so I had the vision that if I keep at this, the growth is inevitable. Yeah. And people hear that and they miss the power of it. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll say it again, the growth is inevitable. You will become more confident, more competent. You'll, you'll just be creating better value over time. And so I, once I had seen that, I couldn't let it go. I just had right. to give this podcasting thing a try. <laughs> It, my work there has evolved over time. In the last year or so, I've had more fun on the video streaming side. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing these Saturday morning conversations on YouTube and other platforms. And I've really been getting a lot out of that. I still do the podcast, still uh, try to repurpose blog posts in that form, for example. And mm -hmm. I'm up over 200 episodes. So having a lot of fun with it. Um, I think you asked about where I see it going. I'm not exactly sure. I just know that it's keeping me on fire. That's yeah. what I tell people, and it's really true. I know you find the same. It is a lot of work, but it keeps us in these great conversations with people that we would never have crossed paths with, right, otherwise. And here we are in a real-time conversation, and we can learn together, and, and mm -hmm. things that every guest tells you will spark something in your consciousness and appetite to learn. So... It's just been a lot of fun, and my wife has been a very faithful supporter through the whole thing because it does take time, but I'm enjoying myself. So whatever bandwidth I have, I, I would always like to do more in terms of creating content, but 
uh, whatever bandwidth I have space for, I'm, I would like to use. Yeah. Well, living on the West Coast, of course, your roundtable listeners, the roundtables occur at 8 o'clock Pacific time, right. 11 o'clock Eastern time. So being on the West Coast, you get a chance to get the podcast, uh, get the roundtable uh, live stream done by 9 a.m. Pacific time. So it gives, still gives you your Saturday to go That's from right. there. But great conversations on that roundtable. Often you have individual guests. Sometimes you have groups of people. Uh, and I think you really uh, do a, a masterful job of highlighting everyone, the different ways of mm. thinking around different topics. So, uh, you know, that's what drew Thanks. me to you, Tim. And I really uh, respect the work that you're doing. And I do also admire the fact that you found a creative name for your podcast. You didn't let your narcissism and egocentricity take over and you didn't name your podcast <laughs> after yourself uh, with your name in big font. Uh little shot at myself there uh but uh just just you know i i think it's it says when you say teachers on fire you really do have educators on that podcast who are on fire they are they mm. are passionate about things they are um it's uh, listeners i would really encourage you to tune in uh saturday mornings uh teachers on fire on youtube uh stream live on uh, are you on facebook as well i always catch you on youtube it's I facebook am, yeah. and where else that's it. Yeah, it shows up on Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, if you're into Twitch, YouTube, yeah. and I think somewhere else that I'm forgetting. But <laughs> Tim, Tim is not hard to find listeners. I'm going to give you all of That's the right. social media handles shortly. All right, Tim, as we finish up here, uh, I got two questions left for you. Uh, they're questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first question is an educational question. The second one, a little more personal. The first question, um, and you can take this in any direction that you want to go, but educationally speaking, Tim, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is the knowledge that grades are still being used as wages. We hear it in words like bonus, punish, reward, earn, and other quasi-financial terms like that. Yeah. Grades as wages leads to erroneous approaches that essentially try to reward students for quantity instead of quality. And, and I read into that compliance instead of actual evidence of learning. That's what we're all about. So uh, that's something that bothers me. Uh, thankfully, I don't see as much of it anymore, but mm -hmm. you do see it in your travels. And if you are a connected educator, you, you see it in other parts of the world as well. So I think it's a really harmful uh, practice and, and philosophy that, uh, yeah, that I'm hoping goes away. You are preaching to the choir here, my friend. Uh, <laughs> it is, uh, I mentioned it earlier, this, I think that is why so many students say, are you marking this or are you grading right. this? Because if you're not marking this, I'm not doing it because we have cultivated this culture that says, if I do this, don't I get something for that as opposed to it being your learning. And I remember back when I started to change my practices saying to my students, I don't need you to do anything. Like, I right. don't need it. It's really about your education and your learning. And that really was transformative in the classroom. So I'm with you on that. The more we can move away from this compensation and the more we can get to, you know, assessment being about communication and degrees of, of learning. Uh, I think you're I think you definitely like I said, you're you're preaching to the choir here. Uh, last question, Tim, as we finish up, it's more personal question about success. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast to sort of explore this notion of success. If a random person stopped you on the street and said, What's your definition of success? How might you answer them? When the outcome meets the target. So mm. uh, that that's true in learning, it's true in life. So whether it's multiplying mixed fractions or getting your driver's license, having a happy marriage, 
or publishing a podcast, Tom. Success yep. is defined by the target. So the only question is, what is your target? Do you have targets for yourself? I'm a very mm-hmm. goals-oriented person. I think it's a really important part of getting the most out of life, and I, I think you are too. So mm-hmm. that's how that's how I would define success is meeting that target. Meeting those targets. Uh, and, and I know that about you, that you are a goal setter, that you spend a lot of time thinking about goals, both both personally and professionally. And it is clear that those goals drive you to the successes. You reach those goals. And I think that's why uh, you've been able to accomplish so far in your career what you have been able to accomplish. And I know there's more to come from you. It's uh, it's very clear to me that you are going to continue to be uh, a, an influencer and uh, a content creator and someone who really has a voice in the educational landscape. Listeners, you can find Tim pretty much everywhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the the easy part about this is that the handle is always at Teachers on Fire. You'll find that on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, you can find Tim uh, also on LinkedIn. And we mentioned this already. There's uh, Teachers on Fire on the YouTube channel. And of course, I want to encourage you to subscribe to the Teachers on Fire podcast. Uh, check out those Saturday morning roundtables, uh, 8 o'clock Pacific time, 11 o'clock Eastern, Uh, They are wonderful conversations that really cover a breadth of topics uh, in education. Tim, it was great to to reconnect, even though we live 20 minutes away. Here we are virtually. Uh, (laughs) But it was great. Uh, uh, Look forward to the next time we get a chance to get together face to face. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, likewise. It's such an honor. I am humbled to be here on the show, Tom, and uh, such a huge fan of your work. So please continue what you are doing. And thanks again for having me. Look forward to connecting. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a listener question. Yes. And again, as a reminder, you can email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you have any questions about assessment and grading. I'll answer those questions on the podcast because in most cases, your questions are probably other people's questions. You're not alone in this work. So by sending the questions to me, you might actually be helping others as well. Okay, so I got an email from Megan from Arizona, and she asked me if I would be able to share sound ideas for determining high school final course grades or scores, GPA calculation, and credit. Megan provided me a little bit of background as well. She said, our high school group and our district standards-based task force is at an impasse right now on the best decision when it comes to a few topics. And she provided some specific questions that they're grappling with and what they're thinking about. And I'm going to deal with each one of these one at a time, okay? So her first question was, how should we uh, determine final course grades or scores for high school? She said, when it comes to determining final course scores or grades, we're looking at averaging student standard scores and getting their final course scores from that or using a logic rule method. Okay, So before I get into that, let's talk about the organization of evidence in the first place. At the secondary level, because the standards are complex and many demonstrations of learning involve multiple standards, I tend to lean toward organizing gradebooks by strands, categories, or domains. So to Megan's question, when you list all of your standards, I would also make sure that they are tagged to one of the strands or the categories or the domains of of the standards, right? Because the key for me would be able to would be for us to be able to produce an overall level per strand. So Megan's question mentioned averaging across standards, but I would organize it by strands as well. So English language arts, for example, you'd have a level for reading, a level for writing, a level for speaking and listening, 
uh, a level for language usage, if you will. Now, you could split the strands if you wanted to. I have no issue there. You might split them into different, you know, writing styles, etc. But it just gives you a more specific look at where the student is with different aspects of the learning. Then, for each standard, make sure you have the most current level of understanding. That's the key. Now, in all likelihood, at the high school level, you're going to be choosing between the most frequent or the more recent. I typically don't say the most recent in high school because at high school, the standards are fairly sophisticated and it's generally quite rare that once would be enough. I usually ask participants in workshops and, and schools I work with, etc. I ask them, what is an adequate sampling? Right? So find out what an that means what would represent enough evidence to give you a fairly uh, precise opportunity to make a decision about pr proficiency, right? And use that. How many pieces of evidence you use for grade determination is different from how many of the students will do, right? Now, when I've asked that question, honestly, I've never heard more than like between three and five. It's usually around three or four. And three is the most common number I hear. And I do like an odd number just because then you kind of have a built-in tiebreaker, but you don't need to force that. You ask yourself what an adequate sampling is, and that's what you would use. And so you'd only have that sort of active in your grade book. So you might say, let's just hypothetically throw numbers out there. Let's say I said an adequate sampling was three. Now we might do this seven times, but I'm going to use your three more recent demonstrations to determine. So the, to determine your grade. So the critical element here is that you have an accurate rating on each standard. That's the key, right? The, the, the issue with averaging is actually not averaging. Averaging, finding the mean, is a valid mathematical calculation, but we have to do it correctly or you're going to get a very skewed view of where the learner is. I mean, the two major issues with averaging are averaging on a zero to 100 scale and averaging over time within the same learning when I combine old and new evidence within that same learning. But when you shrink the scale to a one through four, then finding a mean can actually work quite well, but it is critical that each standard be accurate, an accurate rating of where that student is. So the non-example would be students started as a two, finished as a four on this standard, therefore the teacher rates them a three. See, that's the averaging over time within the same standard, and that is hugely problematic. What we want is students started as a two, finished as a four, therefore they're a four. You do that with each standard, and you've set yourself up for some ease going forward. Now again, you can use a logic rule, but for me, I find the mean amongst all of the standards in the strand, and I'd use my rounding rules just as, I find that just as accurate. Now, some might say, well, what about priority standards? Should we give priority standards greater weight? And in theory, I understand where that's coming from, but remember, this is all getting synthesized into one singular grade, so it gets diluted along the way anyway. So I, I get it, and I appreciate the question, uh, but I don't think it actually makes that much of a difference. And honestly, the number of times I've sat with teachers walking through all of the scenarios of weighting the standards, it just didn't seem it was worth the effort because you really only have four levels or four choices. You're not wrong if you do it. You're not wrong if you weight certain standards, high priority, etc. But I, I'm just not sure it has the payoff we might think it does. So in theory, it sounds good. But I think practically speaking, the way it plays out, it, it doesn't really make much of a difference. So the key to all of this is to make sure that whatever level is determined for each of the standards is accurate. Then find the overall level per strand, okay? Find the mean across the strands, use your rounding rules, and there's your level.
Now, I'm not against logic rules. Don't, don't get me wrong at all. But honestly, the number of times I've done that kind of calculation and compared it to most logic rules is pretty much a wash. Plus, there are some logic rules that might say, you know, to be a four, you can't have any twos, which I think is a little aggressive. Not everybody does that. There's not one way to do a logic rule, but I've, I've heard that. Like with all of the standards, really, I can't have one two when all of the rest of them are, are, are mostly fours, some threes, and I've got a two here or there. I don't know. That, that feels a little aggressive to me. But you have to check this calculation because you are the final arbiter of the grades, right? My expression is always, there's nothing wrong with starting with the science, but you have to finish with the art, right? Start with the science, finish with the art of grading. You're the one that decides. So to the first point about how you determine an overall grade is to make sure that you organize the evidence properly and that you make sure that each standard is rated with the most accurate level. And then from there, it, it gets pretty easy. Okay. Megan's second question, how will GPA be calculated? She says they're exploring options when it comes to GPA. They're asking, for example, if a student has a three for a course, do they earn a four for their GPA? Now, GPA can and will be as simple or as complex as we make it. Okay, one through four and A through D are both four levels. Remember, it's not the symbols you use to report, but what the symbols mean and how they're described. I have a fundamental aversion to having two levels be one level, right? So for example, if you say, well, if you're a three, you're an A, but if you're a four, you're also an A. For me, that's too opaque. And the underpinnings of that are usually two things that I can't really support. First one is when the three is called meeting the standard. When you have standards that are scalable, meaning there's several versions of quality, then all of the levels are versions of meeting the standard, right? You can't have a finite destination. So a one, I'm meeting the standard at a novice level. The two, I'm meeting the standard at a developing level. Three, I'm meeting the standard at a proficient level. Four, I'm meeting the standard at a sophisticated or exemplary level. So think of writing. Writing is a great example to use because I think we all kind of understand that there are several versions of quality, right? We can picture... Uh, sophisticated writing, we can picture competent writing, we can picture developing or approaching writing, it's partway there, strengths and areas that need strengthening. And then there's writing that is minimally acceptable, but it's it has a lot of work to do, right? So when you have a standard that is scalable, creating a finite destination along four levels is really sort of counter to, to what we're really looking at. There's just several versions of quality, okay? So when the three, this is the second part, when the three becomes that finite destination, then the four has to become above and beyond, which sounds noble, and it's easy in the abstract to say, well, we have high standards. But when you say the four is above and beyond, at best, that is opaque because it's never really clearly defined. We just say you're more than that. And at worst, it's absolutely dishonest because we're telling students their grades represent their ability to meet the standards of the class they're enrolled in, but to reach the highest level, you have to go above the grade level. And that isn't really accessible to most learners. Now, when I work with schools, I often ask them this question. I ask two questions successively. I'll, I'll ask them first, how many levels do you have? And they'll typically answer, again, you don't have to have four, but they'll typically answer four. And then I ask them right away after, I say, how many accessible and acceptable levels of performance do you have? So then we'll take a closer look at their scale. And I'll read, for example, and I remember one school I worked with, their one 
was not yet. So that's not an acceptable level of performance. So now we're down to three, okay? Now, then we look at the top of the scale and we say, what's the four? And they say, well, a four is above and beyond. So we squeeze the top of the scale. The one at the bottom is the not yet, the top is above and beyond. So really, operationally, this school only has two levels, not four. Looks like four on paper, but it really is only two. How many accessible and acceptable levels of performance? A one, not acceptable. A four above and beyond, not really accessible. So the key here again is in the setup. If you're using four levels, and again, there is no rule that says it has to be four. Research just says fewer, more clearly discernible levels. But for the life of me, honestly, high schools, I do not understand why you would go with anything but four because of some of the outside influences and pressures like, you know, transcripts, GPAs, uh, athletic eligibility, and all of that. So for me, I would describe the levels as a four is a student who has a deep, sophisticated, authentic, or creative understanding of the standards. That's your A. A three is proficient. They're competent. If they have a good understanding of it, it's a little more clinical. That's your B. The two is developing. They're partway there. They have strengths. They have areas that need strengthening. That's your C. A one is a novice. They're, it's minimally acceptable. They have much work to do but it's still an acceptable level of performance. And then your zero, of course, is your insufficient evidence. That's your F. So zero, again, not the issue. The issue is the percentage scale. If you shrink the scale, I'm not saying this is the best option, but you can use zero for missing assignments. I'm not saying I would promote that, but we have to be honest when somebody says, is there ever a time I can use zero for work not handed in? The answer is yes, if you shrink the scale. So if all four levels are you know, four, three, two, one, our ABCD, our sophisticated, proficient, developing, novice. If you do that, then your GPA, athletic eligibility, all of that becomes actually much easier to navigate. Here's the key to that. You teach to the four. Now, some react to that by saying that lowers expectations when the four is actually on standard, but that is a fallacy. You want to make an A harder to get? Then sure, ask the students to work above the standards, work above the expectation. That's not rigor, though. That's just making school artificially harder for students. That's not having high standards. That's having unreasonable expectations. Like, why would we hold back excellence? Teach to it. Teach to sophistication. Teach to authenticity. And then at least if the student falls short, they know why, right? Above and beyond just creates all sorts of very predictable issues that always end up being unfair to the learners, or at least the perception is that it's unfair. And if that's their perception, then that is not a good culture or atmosphere around assessment. Remember, ask yourself that question I said a couple of weeks ago. Would you accept that in your professional life if that were being done to you instead of by you? And the answer is, of course you wouldn't. Okay, so that's how we would do GPA Keep your one through four, all versions of quality. Okay, so now the last part. The last question Megan asked is, which final course scores qualify for earning course credit? Now, for example, she says, does the student need to demonstrate proficiency on every standard in the course to earn credit? Now, she's saying that yes to that question would be the right answer, it seems, but that's very different from the current practice where students can get by with a D or D minus and get credit. Now, if we lower the expectation which she's lamenting here, uh, an award credit for earning a two on some standards, then more will earn credit, but it seems that we are lowering the bar. 
Okay, so you can see where I'm probably going to go with this because I think it's all in that setup again. I don't actually think you're lowering the bar. Uh, so I would not say yes that they have to show proficiency with every single standard because if you want to create a mastery learning model, then that's different. But for me, the one through four earns credit. But again, how you define the levels will matter a lot. Okay, and this will matter a lot when you do this. If your one through four reads like a learning progression where the cognitive rigor changes as you read through the levels, then for me, that's an implementation error. And then I would agree with Megan's assertion of yes, that we would be lowering the bar. Learning progressions, this is where the cognitive rigor changes, right? Learning progressions are instructionally valuable, but they are the opposite of rigor when it comes to assessment, right? We can't say if the one is that I need help and two, I've got the foundational knowledge, three is the targeted learning, four, I've gone above and beyond. That's what a learning progression would do, right? We start from the simple, we move to the sophisticated instructionally. But in a rubric, the cognitive rigor should not change. It's the degree to which you have met the standard, right? So for example, an analogy I often use is pancakes or baking a cake or something like that. If the standard were to bake a cake, you would have to bake the cake at all four levels. If you were using a learning progression inadvertently, then you would say, well, you get a one if you have all of the ingredients on the counter. You have a two if you have a bowl of wet and dry ingredients combined. You're a three if you bake a cake, and you're a four if you make a wedding cake. Now, I'd rather think of it this way. This is the way I would define the levels. You baked a cake, and you showed some finite skill and some finesse and some flair. It shows a level of sophistication. You're a four. You're a three if you followed the recipe clinically, and it's a good cake. It doesn't show that refinement, doesn't show that skill, but it's a good cake. You're a three. A two is your partway there. The cake, for example, could be aesthetically pleasing, but it's a little sweet, so we've got to work on the combinations and, and the way we put the batter together. And a one means it's a minimally acceptable cake. It's, it's a cake, but there's much to be done. You see, the key to that for me is that I teach you the skills and techniques of the four. I teach you the finesse, the sophistication. And then, of course, if you fall short. So you can see the difference, right? If you if your levels read like a learning progression, then I would agree with Megan when she says, well, if we let students earn credit for a two, well, having a bowl of wet ingredients, having a bowl of dry ingredients, that's not baking a cake. You haven't baked the cake. So yes, you are lowering the expectation. But in my description of those four levels, the student has baked a cake. There's some strength, some areas that need strengthening. Therefore, there are two. We teach to the four. You see, the student needs to write the essay, write the essay, write the essay, write the essay. We don't say, you're a one if you wrote me a thesis statement. You're a two if you wrote a few paragraphs. You're a three if you wrote an essay. And you're a four if you wrote a book, right? So I understand the question that Megan is asking. But a lot rides on how you define and execute your levels, so to speak. So, so many of the mechanics around GPA, final grades, course credit are actually quite simple if you think through the setup. If you define your one through four as gradations of quality, you know, versions of meeting the standard at various levels, then the other stuff related to the questions actually becomes easier to execute. As long as your levels aren't learning progressions where the cognitive rigor changes, if the cognitive rigor is changing and you're going beneath and above the standards, then I then Megan's question and point is well taken about lowering expectation.
But at each level along that rubric or those gradations of quality, you're still expected to produce the essay. You're still expected to produce the project. You're expected to produce the research paper. There's no getting around that, right? So as long as your levels aren't learning progressions where the rigor changes, then all of it will kind of fall into place. A through F, zero through four are both five levels, including that level of insufficient evidence. So, so try not to overthink it. You know, each level is a version of quality and, 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 and just keep it kind of similar in a way to the idea of versions of correctness or versions of quality, because if we overthink it, we're going to make things unnecessarily complicated. You can work with a lot of the existing structures to make grades more accurate and more meaningful and relatively simple to determine if you make sure that you set things up appropriately. Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please uh, email the podcast if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or you just want to connect, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. And a reminder to check the show notes for links for the upcoming grading from the inside out and standards-based learning and action trainings coming this spring. Next week, my guest will be my friend Sasha Heckman. Sasha is currently the Assistant Superintendent for Innovation and Learning at the American School Foundation of Monterey, Mexico, and he is the co-author of the book, Personalized Learning in a PLC at Work, so we get into all of that next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. Your ratings there mean a lot, but of course, you can give ratings on Spotify or anywhere you can give a rating would be greatly appreciated. And if you like what you hear... Please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, to your colleagues, or spreading on social media. I would really, really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.